I receive every word spoken. Thank you for the prayers. Moses would go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And so the children of Israel who were under 400 plus years, 413 or 425, somewhere around in there, years worth of slavery and bondage and working, what was going to happen was God was going to give them 400 plus years of back pay in one day. Now, that's, that's a good story, but it's good news when you realize everything that was done of them was, was going to be just a type and shadow of what would be revealed through the New Covenant Church. And so if it's true to be said of the children of Israel in Egypt that in one day they were going to get back wages for 400 years worth of bondage and slavery, how many know that at Calvary Jesus was going to get back everything that the enemy had stolen or had forfeited in one day? So <clears throat> they had... Uh, they had borrowed uh, wheelbarrows or, or boxes or buckets or whatever you want to see and filled them with jewels and gold and diamonds and silver, you name it, and they left Egypt uh, in a day. And so here comes the Lord, and he says, I want you to take one lamb per house, and I want you to sacrifice the lamb. And I want to get into this typology a whole lot, but it's always foretelling of Jesus. This is Passover. What I want you to do is take the blood of the slain lamb with hyssop and and put it on the doorpost and the lentils of the houses and when the angel of death comes and sees the because i'm going to take and smite the bible says the way the king james says i'm going to take the firstborn among all uh, among all the people in egypt i'm going to take the firstborn but if i see the blood of the lamb applied on the doorpost and the lentils i will pass over that house it was not because that house escaped death. It was when the angel saw the blood of the lamb. He says, there's already been a death exacted here so I can keep moving forward. And it spoke, and so this is where Passover come from, and it was celebrated throughout uh, the ages. It was one of the three major feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, the Feast of Weeks, that would be celebrated in per per perpetuity by the Hebraic people in Hebraic custom. And so we move fast forward into 2,000 years ago, Jesus has come down now getting ready to celebrate where we're celebrating now the week of Passover and he's going to come into uh, Jerusalem he's going to come into Jerusalem 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 the city of peace and this is where, this is where we're going to pick up I'm going to talk today from the words save now we the last song we sang was just a small chorus it's only a small part of the song and it's the word Hosanna everybody say Hosanna now I'm going to ask you to say it again so that the people that didn't say it get a chance to actually say it and make sure you're awake. Everybody say Hosanna. You know, for years growing up, we heard this word Hosanna because it's sung in a multitude of songs, and you've, we've heard it preached, but it wasn't until recently that I began to look into the word Hosanna to realize Hosanna is not like a really fancy word that means praise or he's worthy. It literally means this, save us now. In fact, the word Hosanna brought down to its bare minimum doesn't even just mean save us now, but save now. It's a desperate cry for salvation. This is Matthew. Um, when the word got out that Jesus was not far from Jerusalem, a large crowd came out to see him, and they also wanted to see Lazarus, the man that Jesus had raised from the dead. This prompted the chief priests to seal their plans to do away with both Jesus and Lazarus. 
For his miracle testimony was irrefutable and was persuading many of the Jews living in Jerusalem to believe in Jesus. How many know when the enemy comes against you, he'll attack you and he'll attack your testimony, but that's okay. Lazarus wasn't going to be, uh, Lazarus wasn't going to be under the power of those religious leaders. So the next day, the news that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem swept through the massive crowd gathered for the feast. Now, uh, Historic census says at this time there were probably around two and a half million Jews that gathered from all over the world in Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. Two and a half million. So they hear that he's on his way to Jerusalem and the news swept through the massive crowd who were gathered for the feast. So they took palm branches and went out to meet him. And everyone was shouting, Lord, be our Savior, or Hosanna, or literally, Lord, save us now, or save now. Blessed is he who comes to us, sent from Yahweh, the King of Israel. Or blessed is he, as you've read it, who comes in the name of the Lord. Then Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it to fulfill what was prophesied. Now this is, this is anticlimactic. I want you to get the picture here. They're singing, Lord, come and save us now. They're celebrating Passover, which was their release, the historic release from, from bondage in Egypt. And now they are under Roman occupation. This empire is greater than the Egyptian empire, and it is the ruler, the known ruler of the known world at the time, and they're hoping that there is going to be this, this Savior, they believe in a Savior, this uh, Mashiach, this Messiah that would be raised up, that would free them from this Roman oppression in the same way that there was a deliverer, Moses, that delivered from Pharaoh, in the same way that there was a deliverer, David, who delivered from the Philistines. And they thought that perhaps this king would be raised up and would be donning a big silver sword or, 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 or a sword and a shield and come in on a white stallion. And they're so excited and they're pumped. They've heard, wait a minute, he's already raised Lazarus. So even death has to bow at the word of Jesus. We know that the winds and the waves have bowed at the name of Jesus. We know that the deaf man can hear now because of the power of Jesus. We know that the blind man can see now because of the power of Jesus. We know that the dumb can talk because of the power of Jesus. And we know that the lame walk, and now the death or the dead has been raised. Now Jesus has come to come free us. And that's exactly what he does. And they look for him, and they look up to the hills. There's an old scripture that says, I looked unto the hills from beyond the hills for where my help comes. And they look, and here he comes. There he is. Can't you see him? But he's riding on a donkey. What? Where's the white horse? Where's the sword? The subtitle of my message is not just Hosanna save now, but it's triumph through tragedy. Triumph through tragedy. And they look up and the people, uh, then Jesus found a young donkey and rode in. To fulfill what was prophesied, people of Zion, have no fear. Look, it's your king coming to you riding on a young donkey. Now Jesus' disciples, verse 16, didn't fully understand the importance of what was taking place. But after he was raised and exalted into glory, they understood how Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies in the scriptures that were written about him. 
All the eyewitnesses of the miracle Jesus performed when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead kept spreading the news about Jesus to everyone. And the news of this miracle of resurrection caused the crowds to swell as great numbers of people welcomed him into the city with joy. But the Pharisees were disturbed by this and said to each other, we won't be able to stop this. Good God. The whole world is going to run after him. We won't be able to stop this now. The whole world is going to run after him. Today, as you know, we celebrate Palm Sunday. Exactly one week of, of, of celebration before uh, Jesus would be taken Thursday and uh, kneel in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And to pray what is actually the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is not our Father which art in heaven. That's the pattern prayer. The Lord's Prayer is, Father, I pray that they may become one. Even as we are one. Father, not my will, but thine be done. You can read it in John chapter 17. It's a beautiful scripture. It's a place where Jesus' battle was won. In fact, it was not won at the cross. It was won first in the garden. But I'll leave that part alone. So we, we celebrate today Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week. And the, it marks the start of the most important week in human history. The week is going to end in victory over sin. Somebody say amen. The week is going to end in victory over sin and sickness and Satan. Now, that's a good chance to say amen. This week is going to end with a, the known victory over sin and death and sickness and Satan and the curse. The week, it, it, but it doesn't start that way. It doesn't start that way. It didn't start that way for Jesus. And perhaps your victory is just in sight, but it doesn't look like it's in sight. And maybe it's coming in a way that you did not expect it would come. By the end of the week, Jesus will be raised from the dead as he breathes in the resurrection breath of his father, never to taste of death again. At the end of the week, he will hold the keys of death and hell in his hands, and he will have swallowed up death. Within a few short days, he will ascend back to his father as the rightful ruler and heir of all things. There's such a climatic end to this week. That if we were to read the resurrection account first, we would surely believe that Jesus must have come riding into Jerusalem on a thundering stallion with his sword drawn and his name being shouted from the mountaintops. And in fact, that is exactly what was expected. I think that's my amen. That's exactly what was expected. Exactly one week before Jesus' triumph over death, the crowds gathered to welcome him, their king, by the way. They called him their king in Israel. There would have been palm branches, which represents, by the way, victory, in his path and shouts of Hosanna. The Jewish community had long been under the oppression of Roman occupation, and they longed for a deliverer to come and set them free from the enemy that they could see. Jesus come to free him from the enemy that they didn't know about. <laughs> and it's often that way with us where we're praying for God to deliver us from the enemy that we can't see when the truth of it is he's working behind the scenes delivering us from something that we don't even know is at operation. Because if he delivers us from what we don't see, what we do see will just fade. Save us now. 
As their battle cry, you'd think Jesus came wielding a sword and led an army. You can almost picture a huge majestic white horse rearing while Jesus cries out like Braveheart style, freedom! If we read it from the back, if we got to this chapter and the first thing we read was about his victory over sin and sickness and death, we would think, my God, he rode in on this horse and he's yelling freedom and he's got pain on his face, but that's not the case. The real picture of triumph is not at all what we would suppose or how we would have written the story, and it almost never is. Jesus is not on a majestic steed, but on a donkey. He does not come wielding a majestic blood-soaked sword, but instead will ride humbly on the garments of his disciples sitting on a, 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 the foal of a, of a donkey, or the colt of a donkey. There is no army surrounding him, but a crowd of oppressed, hurting, confused, albeit presumptuous people crying out for a king to lead them. And he heard their cries, by the way. He always does, but victory would not come in the form of a sword, but in the shape of a cross. I'm reading historically what this week represents, but I'm hoping you can hear the meaning and, and read between the lines and hear what I'm not saying. Because many times we look for victory in our own lives when we're faced with obstacles or circumstances or situations in life that we never saw coming. And we pray, God, please deliver me. Would you please send someone to deliver me? Send me a word. Send me a prophetic word. And a lot of the times God hears it. He always hears it. But most of the time, gee, it doesn't come the way that we think. In fact, victory through Jesus did not come with him wielding a sword, and it wasn't shaped that way. It was shaped in the cruciform life. Maybe your victory is not about Jesus showing up and declaring victory over your life as there's a thundering loud boom, but maybe it's a still small voice. Maybe it's in living the cruciform lifestyle. What is a cruciform lifestyle? It's lifestyle in the shape of a cross. It's lifestyle in the shape of humility. It's a lifestyle in the shape of bowing down. You think Jesus could not have ridden a glorious angelic horse or a translucent steed? <laughs> Nobody. He could have, but he doesn't. He comes in riding the donkey, and it wasn't just to fulfill prophecy. He literally humbled himself beneath all things so that he be would become king and lord above all things. And a lot of times in our life we look for God to show up and do this great and mighty and powerful thing, and he does, but he almost never does it in the way that we thought it would happen. I'm talking about triumph through suffering or triumph through trial. Or as they used to say, you'll never have a testimony if you don't first have a test. God, please deliver me. Get me out of this mess. I feel broken, and I feel attacked, and I feel blah. And the Lord said, no, no, it's in that. It's in that that I'm going to teach you about yourself, and I'm going to teach you about me. Can you please free me from this lifestyle, from this brokenness, from this place that I've got myself? Just suck me up out of here. In fact, that's the message of a whole lot of Western theology. Suck us out so we don't have to deal with anything. And the reality is, is the Lord is saying, no, I've got the light inside of you. You're there because if I take the light away, who's going to light up the darkness? 
Jesus wasn't going to win victory over sin and sickness and death. By, by, he, 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 was almost, he almost like had to go uh, covertly. There's, I wish I could remember the theologian's name. I don't remember. But it said it almost as if Jesus, the man Jesus when he came, the Son of God, was almost like, uh, was almost like bait thrown into the sea and the fish of death swallows up the bait. But then God himself sucks the bait out, reels in the fish of death, and now there is no more death. Jesus went down covertly into death. How could Jesus overcome death for us if he didn't taste of death? How could he overcome our suffering if Jesus never suffered? Somebody just fall off. (laughs) I heard something. We're we're paid up on insurance, right? (laughs) How would Jesus free us from death if he's not tasted of death? But he didn't just taste of death. It looked as if death would win. And sometimes in our lives, it looks as the circumstances of our life and the situations, and I know that they're dramatic and, and traumatic for us a lot of the times. It looks like it might overwhelm us and overtake us. But the reality was Jesus was not being swallowed up by death, but he was swallowing up death himself. He was, like a, he was like a stick of dynamite going down inside of hell, and when he got to the bottom, boom, he would blow the whole thing up. So maybe death thought it was swallowing him up, but he didn't know that he was the dunamis. He was the power of God. He was going to blow death up. And when he raised from, from the dead, death things would never be able to touch him again. And if you live in Christ and Christ lives in you, no dead thing should be able to touch you or your life. Let me finish reading my my notes and scripture, and we'll see what the Lord wants to do. There's no army surrounded him, just a crowd of oppressed, hurting, confused, presumptuous people crying out for a king to lead them. And he heard their cries, he always does. But victory would not come in the form of a sword, but in the shape of a cross. The war was not going to be won on some blood-soaked battlefield, but it would be won in a blood-soaked garden. Jesus was not entering the city as a soldier to do warfare, but as a lamb led to the slaughter. The triumphal entry could better be called triumph through tragedy. You can't have a resurrection without a death. You cannot taste of resurrection. Paul said, all that I might know him and the power of his resurrection... And the Lord would answer that with a yes. But you don't get to the power of resurrection unless first you partake in the fellowship of suffering. We have a whole lot of people today that preach there's no such thing as process or suffering in the kingdom. Well, I don't know what kingdom you're talking about. I'm convinced the more that I live, and I'm 23, 24 years into ministry since I started this road of preaching and, 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 and doing the best that I could to translate what comes into my spirit into words. And I'm almost completely convinced that the road to what we understand as heaven is paved through hell. Jesus was going to ascend to the right hand of the Father, but not until first he descended into the uttermost parts of wickedness and hell and preached to the captives. Did you know that actually happened? And and led captivity captive, and then he arose. I don't know anyone who moves with thrust or with power that has not had to face almost seemingly unsurmountable uh, obstacles 
or, or circumstance. It just doesn't happen. You don't get power without pain, and you don't get resurrection without death. Oh, that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. The word suffering means passion. That I might feel the same passion that he felt. And the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, but for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the If you can get a picture of the joy that has been set before you, of the reward that has been set before you, of the goal which is to be one with him and unbroken communion, then maybe the suffering wouldn't, have you ever, it's the picture of a mother suffering through labor and finally giving birth to a baby. In fact, it's the exact same word. It's birth pains. The Bible says when you hear of wars and rumors of wars and pestilences and earthquakes and all these things, don't be afraid. These are the beginning of, the word is in the Greek, birth pains. Sorrows is the way your King James says it, but it's not sorrows. And tribulation is the way the new King James has it, but the word is literally translated. These are the beginning of birth pains. And when a mother suffers through, and this was before epidural, and has that baby, and the baby is put up to her face, and she smells the fresh. There's no, there's no smell quite as beautiful as a, as a, as a little baby. Smells that beautiful smell, and feels that, takes those sweet, chubby little fingers in her hands. That In that moment, all the suffering, it's not forgotten, but it just doesn't matter anymore. I don't know of any loving mother who's ever had a child that said, my God, if I knew I was going to have to go through that, I'd give up the child not to have to go through the pain to birth it. I don't know anyone that walks in thrust or in power in the kingdom of God that looks back and says, if I knew that I was going to have to go through what I went through, I wouldn't do it. And I know that I'm talking to a body full of people who on a daily basis go through things that you will never verbalize and maybe the closest to you will never know about. But I'm just here to encourage you this morning. This ain't the end of the story. Sometimes you'll triumph through tragedy. But if you will endure whatever cross has been yours, I can promise you victory's on the other side. Why do I know that victory's on the other side? Because inside of you is the DNA of God himself. Inside of you is the DNA that's called light. And light cannot be overshadowed. Light cannot be put out with darkness. I told you last week, darkness is not even a thing. It's the absence of a thing. But if there's light, the Bible calls Jesus the one in whom there is no shadow at all. Neither variableness nor shadow of turning. Jesus, Jesus didn't come then on a white a horse to save him, and he's not coming today on a white horse to save you. In your brokenness, he sits with you. And when you kneel down at your house, with your bed full of tears, that's where he is. And when you say something like, I don't know what to do with my life because I've made a mess of it. And there's not a thing that I can do to save myself. And there's not, I've tried everything I could try. I've begged and I've pleaded. In that moment, he's there with you feeling that as well. If you... If you fellowship with him and his sufferings, don't you think that he doesn't sit there and fellowship with you and yours? Yes. The fellowship of sufferings is not just one way. He wants you to experience the power of resurrection, and in, indeed, it's, it's coming. But on the road to resurrection is a place called the Garden of Gethsemane where your will will have to die. Yes. 
Jesus kneels down and would say, Father, if it's, if it's possible, this cup, this cup of separation, this cup of sin, this cup of, uh, uh, the, for the first time ever, the separation of, of, of the word, of the logos of God and God himself. There was going to become this, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And most of us find ourselves in that place at some point in life. If you've ever lived long enough, and if you haven't, give it some time. You're going to come to a place where you say, God, if it's possible, take this cup of bitterness from me. And then he says this, nevertheless, I could just preach that message. I could hear that from the Lord saying, hey, I'm going to tell you a secret about the kingdom. It's nevertheless. Nevertheless, not my will. Your will be done. And in that moment, I told you, the guy that I traveled with for years in ministry, Charles Johnson, went multiple times across the world. But the first time that he got to go to the Holy Lands, and I want to go, I hope I get to go this year. But if not, we'll go next year. G and I are going to go at some point. I'm holding you to that. We've talked about it for two or three years now. I said, what was the most powerful uh, life impacting place that you went. And I thought he would say the garden tomb where Jesus rose from the dead. And, and there are two sites believed to be the garden tomb, or there may be more, but there were t at the time there were two. Same thing for the, or maybe it would be at the cross when, when, when he, Bishop Johnson stood at the foot of the cross where Jesus was crucified. He said, nope, that's not where it happened. He said, but when I knelt down in the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus sacrificed his own will for the will of the Father, in that moment, your salvation, it was a done deal because he had already decided, come hell or high water and both were going to come. I'm not going to finish until I'm done. It was in that moment, he said, that my life was changed. It's in that moment that your life will be changed. If you ever come to a place that you say, okay, Lord, I've begged you to take this cup from me. I've begged you. Did you know that the place where you're challenged the most, the biggest trial of your life, God wants to turn it into the biggest testimony, not of just your life, but of the life of generations to come. It's the way God works. He's a generational God, the God of Abraham, because of Abraham's testimony was going to become the God of Abraham and Isaac. And the God of Abraham and Isaac, because of Abraham and Isaac's testimony, would now be known as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God of Holly wants to be the God of Holly and Jasmine and Bella. And the God of Elizabeth will become the God of Elizabeth and Jacob and Abby. You get the point. God thinks generationally. He wants to bless you generationally. And the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It's the most powerful week of all weeks that, have, that has ever happened. In this one week where Jesus doesn't come and save us with his sword and with his horse, but he rides in on a donkey. Many of us would have scoffed. This is supposed to be the king that's going to free us from the Roman occupation. One week, this, it's just like church people. One week, they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed to be the king of kings. And within a, within a week, they're going to cry, crucify him, the same people. Triumph through tragedy. I'm finishing up. There's no triumph without tragedy. There's no resurrection without crucifixion. Many times in our lives we face circumstances, William, play keyboards for me, that alter the course of our lives. 
Things that come along and knock the breath out of us. For some of us, it could be a bad doctor's report. You ain't going to have that, by the way, that we talked about. It ain't happening. For some of us, it could be a bad doctor's report, the tearing apart of a family, a devastating call from the banker or, or possibly a place of employment. And in those moments, we have a tendency to want to give up. We have volume on this thing. To give up or to give in or throw in the towel and quit. But it's in those moments that victory is at hand. It's in that moment. Yes, Jesus was crucified and buried and rose from the dead and ascended and was coronated. But all of that was preceded by him laying down his will in the garden and saying, not my will, but your will be done. It's within our grasp. Victory is within our grasp when they're in those moments. Jesus knew what the coming week was going to entail. Imagine him riding down on the donkey knowing these same people are going to be crying crucify in just about four or five days. He was not surprised or caught off guard, but there's a scripture. It's Hebrews 12, 2. It brings me peace and joy. It says, we look away from the natural realm and we focus our attention and expectation onto Jesus. The King James says, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, who birthed faith within us and who leads us forward into faith's perfection. His example is this, because his heart was focused on the joy of knowing that you would be his, he endured the agony of the cross and conquered its humiliation, and he now sits exalted at the right hand of the throne of God. Triumph through tragedy. (laughs) In the kingdom, you raise up by going low. In the kingdom, you're exalted when you're humbled. Jesus would say it like this. He that would be first will be last, and he that is last shall be first. You get to victory by bowing your knee and giving your will up to the will of the Father. Most of the men that I've ever seen in my life, if I told you their stories, for instance, if I told you the personal story of my father that many of you knew, but you didn't know him as well as we know him, and none of you know him as well as she does, but there are stories about his life and things that he had to overcome that most of you will never know. And that's okay. You're not supposed to know. If I told you some of the things that Charles Johnson told me about his life. Now, this is a man that literally won millions upon millions of people into the kingdom millions of people in the kingdom. I watched him pick up a three-year-old or four-year-old or whatever, little lame child. You've heard me tell the story and wrap him up in, or her up in his arms. I think it was a boy in his arms and pray over the baby and put the boy down on the floor that had never walked. And I watched that baby walk across the stage to its mother. And I watched the city we were in, India, uh, erupt. I think it was Tooney, erupt. I also watched that man broken in Durban, South Africa, in a, just outside of Durban, a place called Chatsworth, and look at me and say, boy, don't you, because he knew that, uh, that I was on my way to being married, and he said, do me a favor. I said, what's that? And I'm looking at this man like a hero of the faith, and he was, and a hero of the gospel. This was the man whose newspaper article I shared that he's 
was one of the first preachers that integrated his services in the South in the 50s and 60s, and they hated him for it. He's the one that, that they had a shotgun pointed at his face when he got up to preach in a tent one night with thousands of people. And on the podium was a letter that said, if you preach to these and use the N-word that we better not use here, wouldn't use here, if you preach to these tonight, look back in the back of the tent, this gun's going off. And he turned to the boy behind him and said, if something happens to me while I'm preaching the message of the kingdom, can you catch the mic before it hits the floor and continue the message? You hear those stories of triumph. Here's a story of tragedy set in, in a man named Paul Lutchman's house in tears in South Africa and said, son, I want you to tell you something. I said, what's that? He said, do me a favor. Don't you dare go and win the world and lose your own family. Because he did it twice. Don't lose your family. I watched him. He would be laying on his deathbed 